Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In 2014, the National Gallery of Art acquired a 13th century French stained glass window from the Corcoran Gallery of Art. Originating in Soissons Cathedral in northern France, the window came into possession of Senator William A. Clark of Montana, 1839-1925, around the turn of the century, and was installed in the billiard room of his 121-room mansion on Fifth Avenue in New York City, popularly referred to as Clark's Folly. In this lecture, as part of the Works in Progress lecture series on April 15, 2019, Elizabeth Dent discusses the iconography and history of the window, from its original devotional context at Soissons to its acquisition by Clark and its role within the decorative scheme of the mansion. In 2014, the National Gallery of Art acquired from the Corcoran Gallery of Art a medieval stained glass window, consisting of nine panels of French 13th century glass with later restorations. This is undoubtedly the most significant medieval stained glass in a museum collection in Washington and a very exciting addition to the gallery's collection. In this talk, I will discuss the iconography and history of the window, from its original devotional contexts and tumultuous history at Soissons Cathedral in France, to its acquisition by Senator William A. Clark of Montana, also known as the Copper King, around the turn of the century. The window was installed in the billiard room of Clark's 121-room mansion on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Upon his death in 1925, it was included in the Senator's bequest of over 800 objects from his art collection to the Corcoran Gallery of Art, where it was on display until 2014. I'd first like to contextualize where these panels originated. At Soissons Cathedral, located about 100 kilometers northeast of Paris in the city of Soissons. Construction of the cathedral commenced in 1177, and the choir was completed and consecrated in 1212. Dedicated to the early Christian martyrs, Saints Gervasius and Protasius, Soissons is the earliest of the French High Gothic cathedrals. Our stained glass panels were likely located in the choir ambulatory and the nave. The glazing scheme of Soissons and the cathedral itself remain understudied, largely due to a complex restoration history and a lack of historical documentation, which have proved very challenging for researchers. This is a composite window consisting of nine panels, three by three, which have been drastically altered through restoration. And it is important to note that this arrangement we see today would never have existed in situ at Soissons. The central tier of panels consists of three circular medallions set within decorative glazing, and the two side tiers consist of three half medallions each, flanked by decorative borders. The figural scenes are taken from various windows that were in the choir, ambulatory, and the nave, and the panels themselves have been reworked. The circular and half-circular medallion formats were probably fashioned by the restorer or dealer who sold the window to Clark, perhaps already taking into consideration its placement within the mansion. There is a considerable amount of 19th century and modern glass insertions within the panels, especially the blue and red background colors, as a result of multiple restoration campaigns. 
The origins of the panels were lost until 1958, when they were identified by Philippe Verdier, at the time a curator at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, based on the research of the pioneering French scholar of stained glass, Louis Grodecki. It was Grodecki who first identified the very distinctive style of 13th century glass painting at Soissons, and identified much of the other Soissons glass that is now in museum collections. The Soissons attribution for our panels has been accepted in all subsequent scholarship, Although no documentation placing the glass in Soissons has yet surfaced, the stylistic and iconographical evidence is strong. The windows in the five radiating chapels of the east end of Soissons Cathedral dated to the early 13th century, certainly prior to the cathedral's consecration in 1212, and contained narrative scenes of biblical history, saints' lives, and Christological themes. Cathedral records show that many of these windows were given as gifts from members of the cathedral chapter, often honoring saints on the basis of their private convictions, with local saints featuring prominently in their choices. It is from this area of the cathedral that the scenes in the three central medallions of our window very likely originate. The central medallion is identified by its inscription as a scene from the legend of Saints Crispin and Crispinian, brothers and early Christian martyrs. The inscription on a scroll is held by an angel in blue and white vestments who visits the two sleeping saints. The iconography of this panel underscores the attribution to Soissons, as these two saints were particularly venerated there. According to their legend, they were the earliest evangelists to Soissons, and as a result were considered patron saints of the town. In the sixth century, a basilica, now demolished, was built upon their tombs in Soissons and possessed their relics. We know that an altar and two windows were dedicated to Crispin and Crispinian, located in the ambulatory chapel of St. Paul. There are still a few surviving 13th century fragments of these windows in situ in the cathedral, incorporated into two largely 19th century restoration windows. These merit further examination and comparison to our panel. Evidently, the femur of St. Crispin is still in the cathedral as well, housed in a gold reliquary. The bottom medallion also includes an inscription, identifying this as a scene from the legend of St. Blaise, a doctor turned bishop of Sebastia in present-day Armenia, who died in 316 AD. The scene most likely depicts the moment when one of the seven pious women followers of Blaise, entrusts the care of her two young sons to the saint who is welcoming them. The figure on the right is an executioner holding a sword. According to the golden legend, the life of Blaise ends with the statement, and so then with the two little children he was beheaded about the year of our Lord 387. We know that there was an altar and window dedicated to Blaise at the cathedral, also in the ambulatory. Blaise was a popular saint at this time, but also had local significance. Bishop Nivellon of Soissons was a leader in the Fourth Crusade from 1202 to 1204, and brought back many relics for his new cathedral, including the crown of the head of Blaise and one of his ribs. The identification of the top medallion is more difficult as it contains no inscription. The scene depicts a male figure seated at the edge of a body of water at right, as a small yellow nude figure drops into the water, headfirst at the bottom of the medallion. 
Restoration history plays an interesting role here in helping us identify the subject. A heavily restored grouping of women stand at the left side of the composition. With the previous panel, I mentioned the seven pious women who were followers of St. Blaise. In this panel's current state, we see six heads in the grouping. However, when we look at a photograph of the panel prior to its 1960 restoration, we see a seventh, which was replaced in 1960 with a piece of blue glass. This head that was removed was likely a restoration piece painted by a 19th century restorer to replace a lost or damaged medieval head. Stylistically, it was not medieval, which is why it was removed, but its removal now obscures the narrative of the scene. The head of a male figure in the grouping at right is medieval, but is an insertion, a replacement not original to the scene. It originally would have been a female head there, so the grouping would have represented seven women. According to Blaise's legend, the women were ordered by their prince to worship Roman gods. They informed the prince that they would consider worshiping an idol, but that it was unclean, so they took it to be washed and instead threw it into the water, claiming it was a false god as it sank to the bottom. The yellow silver-stained figure probably represents the golden idol being thrown into the water by the women as the seated prince looks on in horror. The iconographical evidence in the panel, combined with the knowledge that we know there was a window dedicated to Blaise at Soissons, has led scholars to accept this identification. It is interesting to note that there are four additional Blaise panels from Soissons in the Musée Marmitain in Paris, acquired by Paul Marmitain in 1878 from Francois Pay, a Parisian glass painter. These are rectangular in format and appear quite different to our Blaise medallions, but this is largely due to extensive restorations. These also merit further comparison to our panels. I'm only going to briefly mention the six half medallion figure panels along the sides of the window, as there is not as much to be said about them. They have recently been addressed by Meredith Parsons Lilick, who has identified them as probably coming from the nave of the cathedral, therefore a few decades later than the figures in the central medallions, as the nave was completed no earlier than 1240. Based on what is known of the nave's glazing scheme, these are probably figures from the Old Testament. A document from 1772 describes the moving of nave glass to fill the axial chapel in the ambulatory, and it is possible that that includes these figures. If by the 19th century they were located in the ambulatory, along with the central medallion scenes, this would make sense that they were all removed from the cathedral at the same time and arranged together in the composite window for Clark. This brings us to the restoration history of the Soissons glazing scheme, which suffered extensive damage throughout the centuries. A large proportion of the glass is now either lost or dispersed. The first significant loss of stained glass at Soissons occurred from iconoclasm during the Huguenot riots in the cathedral in 1567. A contemporary account records the attackers smashing all the windows in the cathedral, leaving only those they could not reach, with the little remaining glass pierced by rocks and bullets. While recording a different episode, this image of contemporary destruction in Antwerp gives an idea of what this may have looked like at Soissons as well. At right, you can see a man on a ladder smashing windows. Subsequent repairs at Soissons began in 1580. 
Later documented restoration campaigns occurred in 1728 and between 1767 and 1772, when the Old Testament figures were moved from the nave into the ambulatory. While the stained glass of Soissons escaped damage during the French Revolution, in 1815, the explosion of two powder magazines located near the south side of the cathedral led to the destruction of the windows on the south side of the structure, as well as the West Rose window. Following this disaster, around 1817, a large group of 13th century windows from the nearby Abbey of saint Yved in Bren were used to patch what remained and could be salvaged, and a considerable amount of Bren glass remains today in the cathedral. Several 19th century sources shed light on the state of the glass at this time. In 1848, a government official described the glass in situ at Soissons, noting that random and careless earlier restorations had left some of the windows as, quote, nothing but disorganized debris. An 1858 antiquarian publication stated, it would be difficult to bring order to this pell-mell of stained glass. A subsequent restoration campaign was underway by 1860 under Adolphe Napoleon Ditron, the cathedral glazier. He was eventually succeeded by his nephew, Edouard Amédée Ditron, who continued the restorations. By 1869, it was reported that the windows were in such a bad state that fragments of glass would fall out with each gust of wind. In 1870, during the Franco-Prussian War, the cathedral was shelled by the Germans for 37 days. By 1875, the Abbe Pecheur described how everything was replaced haphazardly and for effect, without order and without intelligence. The ambulatory windows were dismantled in 1882, and a radical restoration campaign began in the 1890s by Felix Godin, a stained glass artist. It is likely that many original medieval panels were discarded during this time, in favor of new glass painted in 13th century style, with the medieval glass appearing on the art market. This campaign coincides with the time period of intense interest in medieval art and artifacts by wealthy American collectors, which proved lucrative for restorers and dealers of stained glass. It is estimated that 90% of the original glazing scheme at Soissons is lost or dispersed, evidenced by all the clear glass that you see in the cathedral today. Much of the medieval glass wound up on the art market and has been identified in museum collections around the world, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, the Louvre, the Walters Art Museum, and the aforementioned Musée Marmitain, among others. Today, more medieval Soissons glass can be found in museum collections than remains in the cathedral. Of this glass, the window at the Gardner Museum has been subject to the most scholarly study, mostly because unlike ours, it's very well documented and is a good example of what the ambulatory chapel windows would have looked like in situ. It represents the story of St. Nicasius, the Archbishop of Reims, and his sister Eutropia, who were martyrs, again with local significance in Soissons. In the mid-19th century, the window was documented by an antiquarian in one of the ambulatory chapels in nearly its current arrangement. It was purchased by Isabella Stewart Gardner from an unknown Parisian collector through the art and antiques gallery Bacri Frere in Paris around July 1906, after which it was installed in her chapel at Fenway Court. This is about 40% of its original height. 
The remainder of the window was acquired by the Louvre around the same time through an unknown source. Scholars agree that most of the Soissons glass that entered museum collections probably came out of the cathedral around 1890, when the radical restoration by Godin begins, although the Musée Marmitain panels came out over 10 years earlier. Looking at provenance, for those that have been identified, it seems that the glass in every collection went through a different dealer. We know that our panels were in place in the Clark Mansion between about 1906, when exterior construction was completed, and 1912, when furnishing and decoration were completed and the family moved in. How and when did Clark acquire the stained glass? This is a question that I'm still working on. William Andrews Clark was born in a log cabin in Pennsylvania in 1839, traveled westward as a prospector for gold, and made his fortune in copper in Butte, Montana. He used his wealth to invest further in various business ventures, including banking, railroads, and real estate, and to build an art collection. As his wealth and influence grew, Clark began traveling to Europe, studying French and German, visiting museums and galleries, and purchasing art. He was a well-known Francophile and in the late 1870s moved his family from Montana to Paris. At this time, he was buying art from a wide number of Parisian galleries and dealers, focusing mainly on French paintings, particularly the Barbizon School. In the 1890s, after the death of his first wife, Clark became involved in politics. One of the first US senators from the state of Montana, his political career was controversial, with his first election voided due to his bribery of delegates. Clark was re-elected and served as a senator from 1901 to 1907. It was while serving as senator in 1904 that Clark made the announcement that three years prior he had secretly married his former ward, a young woman 39 years his junior named Anna La Chapelle, whom he had sent to be educated in France. The couple already had a two-year-old daughter, Andre, who was followed by the senator's youngest child, Huguette, in 1906. And some of you may recognize the name of Huguette Clark. Reclusive for most of her life, she died in 2011 at the age of 104 and has been the subject of recent biographies, including Empty Mansions by Bill Dedman and Paul Clark Newell. And Bill Dedman very kindly gave me permission to include images from his archive of photos of the Clark family and the mansion in this presentation. And I hope that you enjoy seeing them as much as I have. By the time of Huguette's birth, the construction of Clark's enormous 121-room mansion in the French Beaux-Arts style was nearly complete. Located on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 77th Street, the mansion was designed by the firm of Lord Hewlett and Hull with modifications by the French architect Henri Deglan, designer of the Grand Palais in Paris. Clark wanted a mansion rivaling his millionaire peers outdoing the French-style chateaus of the Astors and Vanderbilts, families who viewed him as a sort of upstart from the Wild West. The home took 17 years to build and was the most expensive residence in New York at the time. It was considered highly ostentatious and out of place, even on Millionaire's Row, and drew a great deal of public ridicule. It was popularly referred to as Clark's Folly and also the Fifth Avenue Horror. A 1911 article in the architectural record deemed it an appropriate residence for the late P.T. Barnum. 
These are views from Central Park, and on the right is Anna with her daughters, Andre and Huguette. The mansion was commissioned in 1897. Construction begun in 1899 and was completed in 1907. It was not fully furnished until several years later when the family officially moved into the residence in 1912. They lived there until the senator's death in 1925, after which it was sold and demolished in 1927, meaning that the home stood for just 20 years. Most of the photographs that survive were taken shortly before the demolition, and many rooms are undocumented. The residence was six stories high with a nine-story tower and featured 26 bedrooms, 31 bathrooms, five art galleries, Turkish baths and a swimming pool, and an elevator large enough to hold 20 people. On the left is a rare photograph of the senator and Anna in the mansion. There were rooms with painted ceilings and 18th century gold and white paneling from France, such as in the Petit Salon and the Grand Salon. The Grand Salon may be recognizable to you as it was later installed in the Corcoran, where it's known as the Salon Doré. In the gallery spaces in the home, Clark displayed his collection of paintings and drawings, as well as tapestries, rugs, lace, and decorative arts. The fact that Clark chose to display his collection in galleries rather than simply incorporate it into private rooms is significant. He intended it to be viewed by visitors. His letters to the directors of the Corcoran demonstrate that he delighted in showing guests his home. Practically every letter he sent closed with an invitation to visit and see what changes he had made to his galleries. Clark hosted organ recitals in the main gallery on Saturdays, issuing cards to those invited. And here's one I found in the Corcoran archives for the then assistant director of the gallery. Clark was keen to be admired for his good taste as a collector and as a patron of the arts. He was very proud of the fact that he rarely relied on art advisors and instead trusted his own taste and judgment. And as a result, his collection was intensely personal. In a 1912 letter to the director of the Corcoran, he recounted with pride an event where the French ambassador to the US acknowledged him in a speech, writing, he took occasion to pay me a very handsome compliment that I had the finest collection of French art in the United States selected with rare judgment, and that it was that of an amateur and connoisseur, rather than the work of someone who had simply a disposition to buy regardless of taste. It was unexpected, but a very fine compliment indeed on the part of His Excellency. Clark educated himself by visiting museums and galleries and searched the auction houses of Paris and New York to build his collection. He bought from a variety of galleries and dealers in Europe and New York, and very little correspondence regarding his purchases survives. We do know that Duveen Brothers' art firm was involved with the decoration of the mansion from early on in Clark's planning. In 1897, Joseph Duveen acquired detailed knowledge of the mansion, down to the placement of the electric chandeliers, and commissioned a plaster maquette of the home, complete with carpets, tapestries, furniture, and decorative objects, all to be purchased from Duveen. The maquette reportedly cost Duveen $20,000 to construct and was presented to the senator in Paris, who immediately placed orders. Duveen Brothers specialized in decorative arts at this time, including stained glass, and this is something I would like to investigate further. 
Clark's only other stained glass bequest to the Corcoran was a group of 17th century panels from Park Abbey in Belgium, located in the third floor library of the mansion, which featured a fireplace, ceiling, and carved woodwork from a 16th century chateau in Normandy. These panels have been researched more recently ahead of their repatriation to Belgium, which took place in 2015. We still have no record of how Clark acquired these panels either. I'd like to move now to the billiard room. Located on the ground floor of the mansion, it was actually connected with the smoking room to create a sort of Gothic great hall, which was 20 by 90 feet in size and featured stone walls and carved wood wainscoting and doors, all in keeping with the neo-Gothic or Gothic revival style that was popular at this time. In his will, Clark specifically mentioned the 13th century window in the Gothic room, so we actually know what his own terminology for the space was. I was very happy to find a photograph of the window in place in the room, dated October 1925, in the archives of the Museum of the City of New York, and I later found that there's also a set in the Corcoran archives. This was taken after the death of the senator, shortly before the window was removed from the mansion. We can see the wainscoting and possibly a chair or bench um, on the side there. This is the only photograph I have located so far of the window in the residence. And I would love to find a photograph that shows its exact placement within the room, but based on the plan, I think it is likely that it was facing Fifth Avenue, highlighted in red. Additional photographs from 1925 confirm that four 16th century French tapestries depicting hunting and pastoral scenes were also on display in the room. As well as Louis-Maurice Boutet de Monvel's Joan of Arc series of six large paintings made between 1906 and 1913, all of which are now also here in the gallery's collection. The Joan of Arc series is currently on display here on the ground floor over in the sculpture galleries in gallery four. A catalog of the contents of each room in the mansion was compiled after the senator's death. I haven't located any furnished views of the space, but from the catalog we can glean more information about the appearance of the room. There was a combination billiard and pool table, carved quartered oak cabinets, and carved oak high back chairs with seats covered in green Morocco leather, all in Gothic style. Twelve long seat cushions covered with red silk damask and a set of 12 tapestry cushions featuring biblical and other subjects were presumably placed on long benches in the room, which we can see in this photo. There was an all-over leather suite comprising of a large sofa and two armchairs covered with light brown Morocco leather and finished with brown leather nails. A large carved quartered oak table in Gothic style was covered with a meal fleur tapestry, which featured a cartouche in the center illustrating King Solomon's wisdom. A 15th century large Hispano-Moresque rug covered the floors, and a pair of antique solid silver chancel lamps lit the space. The four tapestries are also rather mysterious in terms of how they were acquired by Clark. According to a note in the 1925 catalog of the collection, they are said to have come from a chateau near Loche in the Loire Valley, but there is no information about a dealer. The Boutet de Monvel paintings were commissioned by Clark in 1905, presumably specifically for this room. Boutet de Monvel was an artist and children's book illustrator best known for his 1895 illustrated children's history of Joan of Arc, 
We know that Clark's two youngest daughters were fans of the book, and the elder of the two, Andre, was particularly fascinated with Joan of Arc. Clark wrote several times to the director of the Corcoran on the progress of the paintings. In 1909, he reported, they grow in interest with repeated observation, and really I feel confident that the full series of six pictures, when all completed and properly hung in my New York residence, will create a sensation. Recently, Mr. Temple of Guildhall, London was here and examined them, and he was wonderfully interested and expressed his admiration in the strongest terms. Yesterday, Ambassador White and Consul General Mason and his family were here to see them, together with other things which I have, and they were loud in their praises of the magnificent work. We see that Clark delighted in showing these works to his many visitors, and their installation in the ground floor Gothic Hall gave them pride of place in what was most likely a high traffic area for distinguished guests and visitors. Certainly the space functioned as the traditional billiard and smoking rooms for gentlemen, as common in the great houses of New York at this time. But I would argue as well that the room may have been more than just to that. Clark himself referred to it as the Gothic Room, and it featured the Joan of Arc paintings he so enthusiastically commissioned, alongside the medieval French stained glass window and French tapestries. It also likely functioned, in a way, as another sort of gallery in the residence, representing a personal homage on the part of the Francophile senator to medieval France. Soon after the senator's death in 1925, the house was sold, along with almost everything in it, with the exception of the art collection, at auction. By this point, the elaborate mansions on Millionaire's Row had fallen out of style and many had already been demolished. The residence was purchased by a developer for much less than Clark spent to build it, torn down, and replaced with a luxury apartment building. Clark actually first bequeathed his collection to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but with a caveat, that the entire collection be accepted and that there be a designated gallery to display it together, which was turned down. Clark anticipated that might happen, and he had named the Corcoran as an alternate recipient. He had been involved with the Corcoran for over two decades, lending works from his collection, serving as a trustee, and establishing funds for art prizes and acquisitions. His widow and surviving daughters funded the construction of an addition designed by the architect Charles A. Platt to house the Clark Collection, which in all was over 800 objects, including European and American paintings, sculpture and drawings, antiquities, tapestries, rugs, furniture, lace, ceramics, decorative arts, and the 18th century Salon Doré. The Clark Wing opened to the public in 1928. The stained glass panels entered the collection of the Corcoran Gallery of Art in April 1926, at the time identified as panels from a church at Chartres, France. We can perhaps assume that Clark believed his panels to be from Chartres. It was not uncommon for dealers to identify their stained glass as coming from locations that would be recognized and seem more prestigious to wealthy American buyers, and Chartres is of course known for its stained glass. We know that when Isabella Stewart Gardner purchased her Soissons window, she believed it to be from the Basilica of Saint-Denis. As I continue to look for sale records, if they exist, our glass may be listed as coming from Chartres. In 1960, a restoration was carried out by the stained glass artist and restorer Rowan LeConte of New York. We know from correspondence that LeConte replaced some 19th century glass with modern hand-blown glass, which we already saw with the missing head of one of the seven pious women in the Blaise medallion. 
Here's another example of a replacement by LeConte, the architectural element that was an insertion on top of the little tree um, was removed and replaced with a restoration. LeConte replaced some 19th century red commercial glass as well for the purposes of color correction. Unfortunately, we only have black and white images of the glass prior to this restoration, so it's difficult to tell how drastic the change was. LeConte cleaned, re-leaded, and reinforced the window. Replacement of the lead was standard practice in stained glass restoration at that time, but now we recognize that the lead matrix, regardless of its date, is a historical element of the object, and if the glass is stable within its lead matrix, the lead should be conserved if at all possible. With this removal of 19th century glass and lead from the object, there was a loss of material evidence that perhaps could have provided some clues as to the date the glass was put into its current configuration, which could have been helped by examining the lead in particular. LeConte's treatment was representative of the typical approach to stained glass restoration at that time. Since then, the Corpus Vitriarum, which is the international research project devoted to medieval stained glass, has worked to establish a set of guidelines for the conservation of stained glass, which were approved in 2004. The Department of Sculpture and Decorative Arts and Department of Objects Conservation are working on plans to put this glass on display in our galleries in the future. And I hope that by the time that happens, I may have more information to share. The central medallions really haven't been studied since the late 80s, early 90s. They certainly merit further examination, especially looking at archives in Paris and in the Soissons region, as more and more archives become digitized and finding aids are put online. Antiquarian sources and eyewitness accounts are really crucial for the study of this very fragile medium. I'd like to look at the 13th century glass that's still in the cathedral, especially those fragments from the Crispin and Crispinian windows as well as at curatorial files for the glass in other museum collections, particularly the blaze panels at the Musée Marmitain. I want to continue looking into dealer records, and I have to wonder whether there's more of the senator's personal correspondence and personal photographs that were in the possession of his daughter, Huguette, that may shed more light on the decoration of the mansion. There were boxes and boxes of family archives in her apartments in New York, and these are eventually going to be processed and available to researchers at the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library at UCLA. So that's something to look forward to as well. To conclude, the panels contained in this composite window have changed in function and form through the centuries. In the 13th century at Soissons Cathedral, they were incorporated into larger narrative cycles in the ambulatory and nave, likely commissioned by members of the cathedral chapter to commemorate personal devotion, but also to serve as an accessible aid to devotion for all visitors to the cathedral. In the medieval cathedral, stained glass was didactic. At a time when most people could not read or even understand the Latin mass, the stories of the Bible and lives of the saints were communicated through images, and stained glass, with its ability to transform light through color, was considered particularly mystical. As evidenced by the discussion of the extensive losses at Soissons and the rearrangement of the panels into their current configuration, restoration history is so integral to the study of stained glass. Removed from their devotional contexts, the panels served a fundamentally different purpose installed in the private residence of Senator Clark. Viewed only by a select elite audience, the window functioned as an essential part of the decorative scheme of the Gothic room, a room that reflected the personal taste of Senator Clark and his homage to medieval France. I would like to encourage everyone to stop over in Gallery 4 afterwards and look at the Joan of Arc series by Boutet de Montbel and try to imagine them as they were in the Clark Mansion displayed alongside the tapestries in our stained glass. Thank you. Thank you.
This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.